0: difficult to keep the line between the past
1: and the present you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living
2: being we may be through with the past but the past is not through with
0: us
3: welcome back to the next picture show a movie the week podcast dedicated to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release i'm keith phipps uh, suffering a little bit from the after effects of a cold here again with scott tobias
4: tasha robinson and Genevieve Kusky.
3: In the first half of this conversation, we talked about Stranger Than Paradise, Jim Jarmusha's 1984 breakthrough. Now we're going to turn our attention to Jarmusia's latest, Patterson, a film about bus driving, Patterson, New Jersey, poetry, the awfulness of dogs, (laughs) and much more. Patterson, like Stranger Than Paradise, is easy to describe and hard to capture. Adam Driver stars as Patterson, a bus driver in Patterson, New Jersey. The film unfolds over one week, and we watch as Patterson goes through roughly the same routine each day. He wakes up while his wife, Laura, played by the Iranian actress Goldshifte Farhani, usually drowses. He goes back to work, chats with a co-worker, travels his route listening to the conversations of his passengers, breaks for lunch and works on a poem, returns home, has dinner with his wife, then walks the dog to a local bar where he has a beer and chats with Doc, a bartender steeped in New Jersey lore. Each day has its own variations. Laura, for instance, decides to order a guitar and learn to be a country singer, one of what seems to be a series of passing fancies that Patterson greets with a stone face that doesn't quite hide some mixture of amusement and annoyance. The bar invites some drama, particularly from Everett, a love-struck, struggling actor. Mostly, however, life rolls on, and Patterson rolls with it. Yet over the course of the film, Patterson keeps inching toward a greater understanding of his place within the history of his town, and with it, his place in life. We'll talk more about Patterson after the break, then bring it all back home by considering it next to Stranger Than Paradise. We hope you'll stay with us. You drive the bus, right? Your name really Patterson?
0: My real name is Patterson. Well, that's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Working on a poem for you.
3: A love poem?
0: Yeah, I guess if it's for you, it's a love poem. I
1: had a beautiful dream. We yeah. had Twins.
0: Twins. All your poems are still in that one notebook, your secret notebook. I go through trillions of molecules that move aside to make way for me, while on both sides, trillions more, stay where they are. This is Patterson, bus 23. I have a situation. Damn thing could have exploded into a fireball.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I could be realizing my dream
4: to be a country singer. Nashville?
0: We're come. Look Nashville. Do you think there are any other anarchists in Patterson? You mean besides us? Not likely. Without love, what reason is there for anything? Well, he's not going to do anything crazy. Everything he does is crazy. Nobody move!
3: Abaster by in Patterson. Aha. Aha what? This very poetic. So, uh, let's start off generally speaking. What did you all think of Patterson? Loved it. Yeah, yeah, me too. It was
1: on my. Uh, it was number five on my best of list. I, I'm in the tank for him generally, but what really was appealing to me and particularly this year was it was a world in which i could escape it was the f- most escapist film i saw this year i i, I felt like <laughs> a film in
3: which someone drives around patterson new jersey was the most <laughs> <Yeah>. escapist film
4: <laughs> that is like the most scott tobias statement <laughs> like, like like a couple of weeks after kind of being lukewarm on la la land as escapist <laughs>
2: Scott's like, just always wanted to like, <laughs> fall deeper into the world of matches.
3: I'll tell you, though, I-, I know exactly what you mean because mm-hmm. we had a rough year politically <laughs> and, uh, here. But but I remember, uh, this is nothing compared to 9-11, but I remember after 9-11 seeing the movie Waking Life. And it was so wonderful to be in a world of ideas and people... Discussing those ideas and pondering the meaning of life and not reducing everything to extremism and horror and hmm. uh, this last election uh, you know, was not that, uh, but it was a long period in which a lot of shouting and a lot of reducing things to their ugliest possible essence happened a lot and and in this film we have a, a character and, and the characters around him are people who are curious and interested and, and and pondering what life means and trying to give some beauty back into the world. And, and you know, in that way, it is escapist and, and in some ways kind of aspirational.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say it's it's a design for living in a way. And it made me kind of
3: question,
1: what, I, what have I done with my life? Like, what, why, why do I do the things I do? What, why do I have the habits that I have? Because one thing that is true of a lot of Jarmusch films, and this one, really enforces it is that these characters are creatures of routine and they have the days take on a certain re- regularity and there can be comfort to it there's a great deal of comfort to it in patterson but he's also refused to have a lot of the things that we consider you know he doesn't have a cell, cell phone he do, they don't appear to have a television or watch much television when they want to see a movie they actually go out and go see uh island lost souls and and um it's like living in the, the 20th mall. century it's like, exactly exactly it's been living in the 20th century and I, I found that just immensely appealing of just making that decision and it's not even like he's you know i mean you've certainly met the person who will tell you that they don't have a tv if a person doesn't have a tv they're going to tell you about it patterson's not that kind of guy he's just made this decision to simplify their lives and
3: to hold he has. She has an iPad. She has an internet. She connection. does. She yeah. does.
1: But but she also has her obsessions and mm-hmm. interests and, and stays close to them and appreciates, I think, that routine. There's something just very warm about the film that's appealing and made it kind of an escapist fantasy for me.
2: <laughs> you cray. Okay. <laughs> I Yeah. I just, I, I can't get behind that at all. I mean, I found it. I actually find it kind of heavy in its obsession with quotidian banality. I mean, it's so obsessed with the little details of when the alarm goes off, when he wakes up, what his routine is like, how his routine is so regimented that his dog like <laughs> does the same thing every day with the, with the mailbox. There's no alarm, by the way. It's oh, the, I'm sorry. Like It always feels like the alarm is about to go off, I guess. No, he just, they he just, just wakes wake himself up.
1: up. It's a mental alarm. This is just because it's part of the routine, this wonderful well, I mean sometimes it's,
4: sometimes
2: it's slightly earlier. I
4: think there's a very important detail. That is easy to miss, but it is a picture of, mm-hmm. I, I believe in a picture of actually of Adam Driver in his Marine uniform, yep. but it is mm-hmm. of the character in this case as a, as a Marine, like he is a former soldier. He is a vet. And so this, you know, regiment that we see him going through, it's, I think is very informed by his military background. Yeah,
3: I mean, with German, every detail matters and that's mm-hmm. not there by accident. I think it's why he's able to uh, quote unquote disarm Everett so yeah. so, so easily later too. And it's a background that's hinted at. We don't know what his experience was. We don't know how he and Laura met. We don't know if she was, you know. Oh, yeah, I his... didn't even think about no, the we fact don't know that if she's, from she's the US. played by an Iranian actress. Yeah, and yeah. it may not be an important detail, but it's but it's definitely one that's left out there for us to fill in.
2: Yeah, I just, I think that I ended up liking this movie a lot better thinking about it again after watching Stranger Than Paradise, the rhythms of Patterson make more sense to me after going back and watching some of Jarmusch's older work. The feeling of kind of like finding the humor in the smallness of the life that they're living and kind of the way that they're choosing to define themselves and like the long silences and the long pauses and the weird little inserts of listening into the conversations of people on the bus, all of that just sort of slotted in better for me In comparison to his older work, than it did when I first saw it at TIFF, and when I was experiencing as as its own thing, as opposed to as kind of like part of a language, I guess that Jarmusch has built over the years. And Stranger Than Paradise reminded me of that language and kind of made it part of like a long conversation that he seems to be having cinematically. And in that sense, it worked for me a lot better. But I just I can't see the escapist fantasy in it.
1: Well, I mean that's just a personal reaction to it because everything you say is true as well. I don't think we're necessarily Conflict. I'm just saying, as a as a human being, and the way I make my way through the world, the way they make their way through the world is really appealing, and it makes me question
3: myself a little bit. There's a little unsettled about the relationship too. I, I get the feeling these are people who are learning to still learning to be a couple in some ways too. You know, he he doesn't want her to buy the guitar, but he doesn't know how to say that. And he won't say it because he wants to make her happy, you know, and I think you get the sense. He hates
4: her dog. Yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit of, of
3: unspoken history to he hates the dog. There's all these paintings in the background that she's done of him and of the dog. And you feel like at some point maybe she's moved on from painting to cupcakes to guitar or whatever. Oh, yeah. And, she's and, incredibly restless. Right. And she's very good at some things and perhaps will never be a great country singer. We don't, we don't <laughs> or know. The, or a painter. Those pictures right. of the dog. <laughs> I like
2: the clothes she makes. Yeah. yeah
3: I like the clothes. She, she's, she's lovely. at. I mean, she makes lovely designs. I and mean, you get the feeling her cupcakes are fantastic. But uh, you know, even if she's the best cupcake maker in the world, it's probably ch- a good chance that she'll be on to the next thing in a couple. And I'm of not months. sure that I'm not sure that her Brussels sprouts
1: <laughs> <laughs> and cheese, cheese pie, pie is going to take the world by storm. That, that not uh, look good. What a wonderful bit that is, because again, he's very mm-hmm. in, indulgent of these things, and he he tries the, the pie and makes them the mm sound, and then he just takes the longest drink of water <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to choke that down. I, uh,
4: yeah, I, I haven't yet got to say that I I also love this movie and I, I find it very funny to talk about while almost barely laughing in the in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the movie itself and that that just kind of like i think sums up my relationship with this movie like i walked out of patterson being like that was really good and then i just kept thinking about it and be like oh that was really good i thought you know it, it was like a movie whose greatness kind of crept up on me and i feel like i um, maybe wasn't as excited about it as i should have been the first time i saw it so i was glad to go back and revisit it for the for this podcast and kind of find that my enthusiasm was founded But before I forget, I have to say, speaking of little details and how everything means something and kind of going back to the whole escapist fantasy versus mundane reality whatever you know we talked about the various conversations on the bus the one between the two students talking about mm-hmm. did you catch who those two actors uh, not were? until i
3: read about it later but that's that was that's, that's such a nice those, those
4: are the two kids from moonrise oh gosh, kingdom of course yeah oh. <laughs> and, and and just like having the leads from a from a wes anderson movie pl- uh, plopped in They're like it has to it has to be intentional especially oh yeah oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah jared okay. gilman the kid has barely done anything uh, since then the, oh, the girl's been in a lot but, she's, a, she's in manchester yeah she's in manchester yeah. and she was also in that Sisterhood of Night movie that uh, was out a couple years ago that I really liked. But yeah, that's just one of those details that I think can be read into if you want to read into it.
2: Yeah, there's a precision, like a visual precision to this movie that in a way I find Stranger Than Paradise's kind of like looseness and roughness more appealing, but the precision the, the visual precision here is reminiscent of a Wes Anderson mm-hmm. movie particularly just like, just the details of the space that Laura has designed. Mm-hmm. I mean I love the visual aesthetic, like the the crowded, like everything is patterned, everything is black and white everything is different. Uh, the, sense that she has created all of these things and put them together. And Patterson, by contrast, just seems like such a plain and simple dude living a plain and simple life. And you kind of get the impression that if he was living alone, his place not might not be like, his place almost certainly would not be as filthy as Willie's, but it might be as simple as Willie's. Mm-hmm. I just get the impression of a perpetual sense of discomfort with the busyness of the house that he's in. Mm-hmm. But again, he's just, it's something that he's willing to like go along with to support her. And because it makes her happy. He has
3: his basement room. It's probably a little more reflective mm-hmm. of how he yeah. would, uh, he would live without her. But so why
1: does he need her though? Why, how would you describe that relationship?
4: I think she kind of re-energizes him. I mean, if this whole movie is about how people express themselves Creatively and artistically, like she is so outward in her creative expression, where he is so inward. And I think, like, just that creative spirit that she radiates kind of, like I said, energizes him to, as he goes through the paces of this incredibly mundane life. Sometimes
3: people who are introverted are drawn to people who are not introverted. <laughs> what are you
2: talking about, Keith?
3: Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, one I little... deserve this in my
1: life. <laughs> one nice little detail, too, is his lunches that he brings in the little black and white sandwiches that (laughs) the rye or or
4: pumpernickel and white bread. Right. Yeah.
1: And and the little, the little photos and there's like a flower at one point in there. And Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's nice. It's, It's,
2: I mean, he writes...
1: Fantasy, Tasha, <laughs>
2: he writes love poetry to her. Like, what does he get out of her? I mean, I think he loves her. Yeah, there's that too. I guess I'm trying
1: to like define what the relationship yeah. is and what they're both bringing to the table and getting out of it is yeah. important.
4: But uh, just in terms of small moments, there's always that like lingering moment every morning when he wakes up where he just kind of, looks at her and observes her and i think that is the the love that that you see there tasha
2: yeah i, I mean I, I was specifically going to cite that not even the for me it's not the moment that he where he looks at her it's the moment that we catch of them and just how they sleep mm-hmm. you know kind of intertwined pressed up against each other um, well, it's a very it's- small bed. I think it's a full size bed. Which come on, guys, <laughs> you can invest in a queen. <laughs> but, but I mean, making that is uh, like making that bed that small is a choice. Sure. I like, know. <laughs> I, you know, she would she would invent uh, black and white like extra wings to give them some more space or something if that was something that they wanted. There's just there's an intimacy there that is, as with so much of Jaramush's emotions, unspoken, mm-hmm. and I think more powerful for being unspoken. And uh, like it just it doesn't come to me to question their relationship much I think. I'm really curious what you guys make of his poetry Um, like the first several poems in this movie I kind of thought oh we're laughing at him because his poems are so simple and uh, like not simple in the way of like you know the master haikus but, but like banal just really really banal and I thought oh this is you know another Jomushian celebration of banality and it feels to me like they get better and more beautiful over time and I cannot tell whether that is actually like creation of art or it's just me getting used to the language or it's me coming to like the character more like is he developing over time or am i developing into this world over time i think it's a lot because i think they
3: get better with the second line because I, th- I think with the first line he scribbles down it tends to be a fairly as you say banal observation but there are shades and details with each line he has because it's a poem um <laughs> but uh no i, th- I think it's there's, i don't know if it's supposed to be. It's written by. They're written by Ron Padgett, who is a quite celebrated poet. But I think they they feel like the right poems for someone who is still finding his voice, but has a very good voice to find. Uh, would write, and it makes sense to me in that sense.
4: Well, I think also just the way that they are presented in the movie, where you kind of see them developing. And, you know, they, they start in his head in voiceover as he's walking to work. And then they kind of slowly, uh, stiltedly come out of his pen, and they're they're written across the screen, and then it stops. And then a couple scenes later, he picks it up. And what he wrote previously is read through as it's intended to be read, like it, uh, and it doesn't sound as stilted, and it doesn't sound as weird, you know. So I think Part of that is just kind of reflecting the act of creation and how things kind of come into focus as they're refined from your brain to the page. I really liked that process.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, and I love I, I the poems from the beginning, but I think maybe you're right in terms of you know, how, how they end up feeling. But I, I really like the, the first poem is the, is the one about mm-hmm. blue-tip matches. I love. I think it's a beautiful poem. To be able to find this beautiful everyday thing that people might take for granted, which are these these Ohio blue tip matches that have this wonderful subtle aesthetic and draw that out and then then have the poem evolve the way it, it does into something that's quite sweet
0: Here is the most beautiful match in the world So sober and furious and stubbornly ready to burst into flame Lighting perhaps the cigarette of the woman you love For the first time and it was never really the same after that all this will we give you that is what you gave me i become a cigarette and you a match or i the match and you the cigarette blazing with kisses that smolder toward heaven.
1: Yeah, I, I, I was won over by that. And and that's a consistent bugaboo with me in films about artists is because I feel it's almost always a mistake for these films to show us, you know, the musician's work or the filmmaker's work or whatever, because it's it's usually just crushingly banal and not nearly as brilliant as everybody has been saying it is. You know, Patterson's work is not hyped to that degree, which is which I was grateful for, but I think this is legitimately beautiful work. Um unlike you know, my go to example is Mr. Holland's Opus. Unlike the <laughs> Opus.
4: I, I think you brought up Mr. Holland's Opus. I uh, did I did um,
1: I did the film spotting your on show. But that oh, is my what, yeah. it, is, it is that is my uh you know, I guess if I had my movie glossary it would be <laughs> mr holland's opus it's haunt, it haunts you. to you yeah it <laughs> really does it's just like oh wow you're, you're like he's given up his whole career as this extraordinarily brilliant composer and then at the end we get this michael Kamen composition
4: <laughs> with
3: electric guitars and it's just, you know i've never seen mr holland's opus? i can't i
4: can't wait yeah, until we out. find something yeah. to pair with mr holland's yeah, yeah, opus yeah. for this
3: should show. have
2: paired patterson with it it's all yeah. about <laughs> the the act of devoting <laughs> yourself to creation yeah,
3: yeah. Just, can we erase the first half and then just, like, start, over. <laughs> just start over right now yeah. well first
2: we could all sit down on watch mr holland's opus together for me it's always the um it's oh it's rent and uh how these characters feel like any anything they do is justified because they're creating and then you get to see the film and the the song that they've created that's their raison d'etre and it's both of those things are terrible Mm -hmm. just terrible i don't think that patterson's poems are terrible but when he starts writing his like ode to matches for me i mean Yes, you can create poems about very mundane, very small things, and those can be very beautiful poems. But for me, given what we had seen of the character up until that point, it felt almost like we were illustrating how small his imagination was. Like he's he's literally creating an ode to something that's sitting right in front of him. And it seemed partially just because of Jarmusch's language. It seemed comic to me. I will
4: yeah. I will respond with three words. William Carlos Williams. <laughs>
2: well, there's that. Uh, I haven't yeah. have any of you read the poem Patterson.
3: It's epic. I know
2: yeah, I have it's it. like five books long. Yeah. But, yeah, five books, but that, that five books is like 200 pages. Sure. Like I looked it up. I mean, it's, it's divided up into five books, but it's not like five, 400 page books. Yeah. Yes. But but, yeah,
3: it's, the answer is, if you want to shame us, the answer is no.
2: Uh, No, I don't (laughs) want to shame anybody. Keith, uh, you were my primary suspect for possibly having read it because you're such a classics person. You know, that William Carlos Williams poem that we're all
4: familiar with, uh, this is just to say, is cited in the film itself. And, you know, Patterson is established as a big fan of William Carlos Williams, who, among other things, was known for these poems about very mundane things. The plums in the icebox, the red wheelbarrow, you know. So I think that that is kind of a direct touch point that kind of explains Patterson's poetic style.
2: I I also think that you're right, Scott, and that it's super important that the only person who really like sees and praises his poems is somebody who cares about him and believes in him very much. And they don't actually get onto the world where they're praised as like the highest acts of genius imaginable. I
1: mean, mean, how do we feel too about him not making copies and him Mm -hmm. not bringing that work out into the world? And then of course that work being... Destroyed by Marvin, <laughs> the dog. Marvin. Um, I mean, and then his reaction to it. I mean, that—that is all those issues. I guess are in play. I'm very curious about what everyone thought about uh, those things. I think it's a tragedy if he doesn't
3: start over, but it's not how the movie ends.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think that. I mean, the ending of the movie is one of my favorite parts. That encounter by the waterfall and where it oh, goes. Yeah. It's like almost weirdly deus es machina, just that this stranger appears to him to give him exactly what it needs. But you want to talk about a beautiful metaphor for art, just the idea of him having come to this point and then starting over with a, a new blank page. Mm-hmm. The ending of the film is, I did not love this film like you did, but I love that yeah. ending. I mean, yeah.
1: that, that, that's Masatoshi Nagesu uh, who was in that so, sequence that we talked about earlier in Strange of the Paradise segment in uh, Mystery Train. He's a rockabilly cat. Yes, yes, so, and there he is as an older gentleman.
3: And also, he provides a reminder that Williams was a physician, you know, and that there's a, quite a tradition of people who are poets who are also other things. I mean, mm-hmm. Wallace Stevens was an insurance executive, and, and I don't think most people in his life knew that he was a poet even, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And, and not to argue actually too much, but the Ohio Blue Tip matches is finding lyricism in the smallest thing in, in the world, not in this you know imaginary world far away, but in, in the world he sees every day. I think that's such a beautiful part of this, of this film.
4: I think it also raises a question of why he writes and why we create and why different people do create. Like, I, I think, for, as opposed to Laura, who is just like putting physical things out into the world, whether it's her painted curtains or her paintings or her cupcakes, you know, like she puts creative products out into the world. It seems like for Patterson, the writing is almost more part of his daily ritual than mm-hmm. any desire to create something to put out into the world. It's something he does because it's something he does. And when the poems are gone, it seems almost like he's upset more because he doesn't have the notebook. He doesn't have the thing in which he can exercise this daily ritual anymore. And when he has the notebook and he can do it, it's not like, I can rewrite all my poems. It's just, he starts over. He starts doing this practice again. And I think that that is a creative style that is not always appreciated because there is not a, necessarily a product that can be shared with the world, but it's still a very valid form of expression.
2: I think he exhibits a little more enthusiasm than I was expecting for the idea of of going on copying his poems. And then the fact that he doesn't follow through on it maybe says more about how he feels about that in mm-hmm. terms of his lack
4: of desire to put them out there. Yeah. I mean, it could also just simply be that he doesn't think he's good enough, but I don't think that the character gives us enough to necessarily know either way why he writes poetry but um, it gives you lots of suggestions.
2: Yeah, I think it's nicely open to interpretation. I think there's enough evidence there that you can read it a variety of ways without being wrong and I tend to love that kind of ambiguity in film.
3: There's a lot more to talk about with this movie but let's we're going to move on to the next segment which is Connections. So we're going to talk about this and Strangers Than Paradise and I think we'll probably bring in some other periods of uh, James' career as well so please join us after the break. Juliet. <laughs> or maybe more like Anthony Cleopatra. <laughs> Speaking of Romeo and Juliet, Evan and Costello. No, Lou Costello has got to be the most famous person from Patterson.
0: Yeah, probably, yeah. I mean, he, he's got that statue and he's got his own park. Right. I mean, Alexander Hamilton has a statue, others got statues, but not their own park. Hell, even Fetty Wap don't have no park.
3: <laughs> now it's time for connections. When we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common, there's a style that runs throughout Jarmusch's career. There's variations on it, but there's you know he has a very strong directorial presence. But I think if you took everything out and told me he only made these two films, I could say, yeah, these are Jarmusch films. Uh, I hope he goes on to make many more films. But these are nice, nice bookends to his career at the moment. I think one connection I would would make would have to be the
1: idea of settling down. The Strange in the Paradise, these are lives that are in flux. or I mean, this is not really the end of anybody's story. These are young people who are sort of drifting around and, and aren't really certain of themselves. And um, um, there's a sense of Patterson of, of having... Reached at least a point of, of some peace, right? Of of being settled within this way of living, and the this way of living that Patterson and Laura have settled into is quite apart from the times. Pointedly from the times, they have not moved with them. I guess she has, obviously. They talk about the thing, her iPad and things that she has, but they've settled into. A lifestyle that is maybe mundane but but is quite warm and something that they seem to want or at least that he seems to want i mean she's a little more restless but um i don't know the feel this feels like an older filmmakers movie and yeah and stranger than paradise feels like a young person's movie
2: yeah i i mean that makes a lot of sense at the same time again seeing stranger than paradise made me understand patterson so much better and part of that is just Jarmusch's, like long-standing comfort with stillness and silence and with just shots where you spend time with the characters and not in a way that feels like a, an artificial hangout movie but just in a way that gives you the camera as an eye observing people who don't know they're being observed I mean there's kind of there's a voyeurism in a lot of his films that is kind of where some of his humor comes from um, just kind of a sense of, of being present for how mundane life is is how, again, banal life is. And there's just, there's so much that goes on in Patterson that just kind of feels like sitting quietly with people as they're having their moments. Then that's part of what I like about the film.
4: Yeah. It's like observation as opposed to entertainment, you know, or you're actively engaging with the movie rather than passively experiencing it. You know, you, you are watching and processing what's happening in front of you in a way that, you know, maybe you're not with something like, to use a recent example, La La Land, which is much more concerned with entertaining you and feeding you information that, and letting it just kind of wash over you and you know, a sense of delight. And this is more of like, look at this, consider it how does it make you feel? You know, that's what I mean. I think when it's more of a active viewing experience,
2: you know, what I see that in most is, uh, La La Land and both of these movies have sequences where people watch movies. Mm. And in La La Land, I just feel stone and Gosling pushing at the camera, boy we're enjoying this Mm. film because cinema cinema is so important and magic and movies like you can watch their faces they're performing and here it feels a lot more like these people are actually watching something like they're passively drinking something in and you're again voyeuristically like watching what they're experiencing I, I don't know, it's just in a way that feels I guess a lot more like realistic and personal.
1: Well in La La Land too, they're watching Rebel Without a Cause and then they're gonna go to Griffith Park and this you know, the the references Pretty clear. I mean, a lot of people have seen Well Without a Cause. A lot of people have been to Griffith Park and know that connection. A lot of people have seen the Paul Abdul video "Rush Rush" with uh, <laughs> with Keanu Reeves. But here, of course, in in Patterson, uh, they're going to see Island of Lost Souls. Right? That's the one. That's the movie they're yeah. seeing. Right? Yep. And uh, this may not be uh, that familiar a touchstone to people. I mean, if people have seen that story, they may have seen it through the Frankenheimer yeah. remake. But um, that's just part of their. Habit, and they they're gonna go there's a cool horror movie playing at uh, playing locally and there they go and they watch it and we get to watch them watching
4: it's being connections this is very minor but it plays into what you're talking about i mean they go to see a black and white movie and there's even yeah. like there's even like a comment like i like that it was black and white and her whole aesthetic is black and white and you know stranger than paradise is a black and white movie you know and that is a it doesn't need to be a black movie, and white they're movie they're watching a color movie whoa Whoa, <laughs> you cracked the code.
3: <laughs> and since I can't leave any trivial connection unmentioned, of course, Nicholas Ray, director of, of uh, Rebel Without a Cross, uh, Jarmusch was his uh, teaching assistant. Uh, oh, huh. Wow. Yeah, and, and was uh, uh, quite he, close to him later in, later in his life, in his career.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, was, he, was he assistant on Lightning Over Water? Yeah, on Lightning the, Over with, Water. Uh, from Vim Vendors directed that? Yep. Yeah. One thing I would say, too, that connects these films, and then all the whole of Jarmusch's career is his interest in america as a country of immigrants there's always a tremendous diversity uh in his work that has been there from the start and every single every single one mm-hmm. um uh, can you name can you name one when that's not the case i now i'm having to think he just does that's just the way his films his films work that's something he always likes to play with is that that mix of cultures and he approaches it with such compassion and interest i mean just you know you can almost see the Patterson driving his bus around as being kind of a stand in for Jarmusch himself as being somebody who's just sitting there listening to the to people have these conversations and and observing them and and getting some satisfaction from that
4: yeah it's not heavy handed at all though no. like to, like to the point where i have to sit and think about that statement as you say and be like oh yeah but it's not like a mission for for him in any way you know i think in, in these films it's just like part of the fabric of his filmography i guess Well, I mean, <laughs> part of, in
3: under patterson new jersey as well it's not mm-hmm. you know this is not a, this is a a diverse uh yeah. city
4: does adam driver speak to another white man in this movie Kind of a, uh, a inverse spectral uh various tests for you. Oh,
3: uh, I didn't even occur to me. Yeah. Um
4: I, I mean there there may be a passing mention, but it just it struck me that all no one at,
3: of no one at the bar. Yeah. yeah.
4: Like yeah. all the interactions in this movie are kind of like cross cultural but mm-hmm. all within the same city. I you mean know?
1: only the little girl who has her poem, I guess. Yeah. No. She's a little girl. Yeah. She's a little girl. Not,
4: not she's a white she's she's girl. Yeah. Sli- slightly different life experiences for those two.
1: For probably.
3: sure. She's a twin. We should yeah, talk about yeah. twins. Yeah, oh, we
4: didn't oh, even yeah. talk about the twins. Yeah.
3: This is a week in the life, but it's not just necessarily an ordinarily week in the life of Patterson. I mean, it ends dramatically with Marvin tearing up those poems. Oh, Marvin. Oh, Marvin. <laughs> oh,
1: Marvin.
2: It's <laughs> such a good Marvin, name for bad, bad dog.
1: And Laura getting her cupcakes to market. That is uh, also a, something yeah. that the film builds to.
3: That's true. That's true. But the other thing running through it is twins. Uh, Laura has a dream, as she recounts early on, of, of them having twins. And they keep seeing twins. And it, it seems to unsettle him in some way, not necessarily disturb him, but it's an unexpected event. What did everyone make of that?
4: I think maybe the most kind of obvious metaphor to draw from it is kind of the twin practices of his, his life, his his vocation mm-hmm. and his, well, his vocation is ostensibly his poetry and then his job, you know, and sort of the way that they coexist next to each other. It's kind of two halves of the same whole. So that is a, like I said, a kind of an obvious metaphor to draw from the twin thing. But it's also just kind of a a little dose of in the film it provides that like kind of deadpan humor a lot of the time that mm-hmm. we've talked about and it's just this little just a little shot of not quite magical realism but you know a little a little absurdity in there I think
2: there's also I mean there's a very Wes Andersonian kind of feeling of there are always lists of things there are always things that visually rhyme there are always pairs of things there are always piles of things I mean that that detail feels a little Andersonian but in a Jarmusch sense I almost feel like what we get out of that scene with a little girl is that, Patterson and the girl are kind of twins mm. he has much more in common with her than she has with her twin who is you know standing over there with her mom and behaving as in a very specific way as she's supposed to and the other twin is like snuck off to write poetry and he kind of has a moment of connection with her that's really not like any other moment of connection in the film you know they share something emotional that's that's very keen that he doesn't really have with anyone else including his wife and in that sense like I don't. I don't know the two of them feel like twins in that moment to me
3: i think all that makes sense and also just simply you know these these are people who are settling in together who are looking at the rest of their lives together and everyone, every of mm-hmm. every twin is a reminder that children are a possibility mm-hmm. for them yeah. you
4: know and they're t- the twinsies are across like all age ranges too mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is kind of thought of bringing two lives into the world <laughs> for the extent of their lives that's interesting too I guess one connection I want to talk about is how time is used to structure both of these films in kind of almost a perverse way, you know, like dividing Patterson into... Days of the week where the same thing more or less happens Mm -hmm. every single day, or we talked about in the first half, like the for no reason one year time jump. Yeah, it's like one year
3: later, (laughs) seven times. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah, exactly. And I honestly don't know if there's like a statement to be made about it other than just observing that he seems to like to structure his films into these sort of like arbitrary time segments for. For (laughs) what?
2: Well, there's a, I mean, there's a heaviness to time in his films. I mean... Only Lovers Left Alive is specifically about how time is weighing heavily on one of the characters Mm. and changing the world in ways that makes it untenable for the other characters. Ghost Dog the Way of the Samurai is so much about how one character passes his time in a meaningful way while the entire rest of the world seems to take place in a different time period that he doesn't feel like he belongs in and that operates at a different pace and kind of wastes its time. Dead Man is is very pointedly counting down the last days of someone's life. I think that he's just he's really interested in the passage of time and how it how it feels to different people in different circumstances who all feel the same weight of it going by.
3: I think he also likes discrete chunks of film. I mean, the the Mystery Train is an interlocked anthology. Coffee and Cigarettes kind of turned into an anthology film after beginning as a series of short films. Broken Flowers is an episodic you know, journey from one woman to another. He likes that kind of structure.
1: Yeah, they're, they're very structured. I mean, and I think, I guess the difference between these two films, Strange in the Paradise and Patterson, to me, is I, I do think the intent in Strange in the Paradise is ironic. Uh, mm-hmm. and, I mean, maybe not the one year later part, but the chapter headings, uh, Paradise, uh, A New World, these are the sorts of titles you'd see in Terrence Malick. Like Ter- mm-hmm. a Terrence Malick mm-hmm. film, I mean, "A New World" was the name of a Terrence Malick film. "Paradise." I mean, this is something huge that, of course, contrasts greatly with what actually the actual action of the film, which is you know much, 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 much smaller. With Patterson, "The Days of the Week" just struck me as. Is just emphasizing routine, like emphasizing the parameters of this world and the things that this couple do on a day to day basis, which again to me quite reassuring, but uh, that's how you count your your days.
4: I think it's interesting that Patterson, you know we, we keep saying how it goes over the course of a week, but it actually ends on the eighth day of that week. It ends on on a Monday again, you know mm-hmm. um so it like seven days, one week would have been so neat, but there's this one extra morning at the end, you know, to kind of establish that it just goes on, it just keeps going, you know, which is a really great way to end it. But um, having that little Monday coda on the end, there is uh, just another little way to kind of use a passage of time to say something.
2: One more connection uh, that came to me really just while we were talking is the idea of uh, these very simple pleasures, which in a way, again, I think it comes back to poverty. Like there's a a sense in Stranger Than Paradise that – uh, having a cigarette in bed while you watch old cartoons on TV is kind of the height of ambition uh, for Willie at a certain point. But they really focus on those cigarettes, you know, the the stealing of the cigarettes, the divvying up of the cigarettes, how Ava uses cigarettes to calm herself down when she wakes up and she's been left behind. There are like little things throughout the film that people kind of seize on as what comforts them or what pleasures them, but they're, they're always very small things. And in Patterson, I mean, he has his poems, but I think almost more significantly that one beer in the bar and the conversation with Doc who is playing chess with himself and just the little conversations that he has as part of his routine, it's a very moderate lifestyle. And again, it feels controlled by how much money they have. Like I, I feel like his anxiety over the guitar is very much money related. Right. In a way that's again not heavily underlined, but is is present and there mostly I don't want to miss out on talking about the bar sequences and how important they are to the film while being still very low-key for the most part.
4: Yeah, I love the bar scenes too. And, um, you know, another kind of simple pleasure is we see Doc with his his news clippings, you know, and mm-hmm. like kind of the, the very subtle pride in Patterson that we, that we see as far as like how everyone kind of knows these, these little facts about who's from here and who's the most famous people from Yeah, here.
1: who's got the most significant monument. Yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> I mean, I also don't think we can end this conversation without talking about the fact that Jarmusch clearly hates dogs because they because <laughs> they they lose all the money for them in, in Stranger Than Paradise, and a dog ruins Patterson's poetry. <laughs>
3: yeah, but the dog still gets the film dedicated to it. All right. Yeah. RIP. Apparently, the dog died after production of the film. Yeah. 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 yeah
2: choked to bulldog. death on poetry.
1: <laughs> i would just say he would say that they're unpredictable that. <laughs> if you think you really understand what a dog is going to do that you might be mistaken i act. mean
4: patterson does not like that dog no, like, that is I, true. I, like i spent the whole movie being like why is he leaving his dog outside the the bar it's gonna get stolen someone told him his dog is going to get stolen it's like oh he wants the dog to get stolen he hates I that dog i don't know about
3: that but, <laughs> you know, I, he doesn't, but I think he, i think he his tolerance for the dog has everything to do with his love for
4: laura right but I think deep down he hates the dog <laughs> well, and he would not care if it got stolen. <laughs> well, he, say, he says
1: that to the dog. He says, yeah. this poetry eaten, he says, I don't like you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but, but, but I will also note that I think he feels that Laura is being too hard on the dog by putting him in the garage. Yes, that's true. Uh, so he does stand up for Marvin in that respect. R.I.P. Marvin. Mar- and it's got, I mean, come on, the shot of Marvin. Scampering outside to push the mailbox over. There's nothing funnier in movies uh, 2016 in 2016 than that shot.
2: <laughs> and that, Secret Life that, of Pets. That movie, <laughs> or that moment is just, it's a payoff. It's a payoff for a mystery that's been building the entire film. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's a dog related punchline.
1: And there's a lot of, I mean, dog reaction shots. Usually, that's a that's kind of a go-to thing for lesser films, but not Patterson. Uh, Patterson makes them count.
2: You know, *Charmless* really isn't one for payoffs. Uh, one of the, uh, you know, yet another connection in these two films is both of them have these moments that are clearly set ups for where a different film would have a huge drama. Oh, he, we, here's a bunch of thugs looking at your dog and saying, "Oh, that's a nice dog. That dog's yep. going to get stolen." <laughs> but it's not going to happen and we're not going to do it because we're not bad guys. You know, if you go two streets further south, something terrible is going to happen to you. I'm going two streets further south. Nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Just...
3: Everett's bar freak out too. Mm-hmm. It yeah. feels like it's it's going to turn into a different kind of, the kind of scene. of phone bullet. shout shout out to William Jackson Harper who's also very funny on on The Good Place Uh, he he plays Everett another great stone-faced German-Wish performance but they I love the scene where he and and, uh, Patterson kind of kind of reconcile after they've had their confrontation uh, on the street it's Mm -hmm. just yeah two guys not quite saying what they want to say but realizing that they need to say something you know
2: the bus breakdown which seems like it's going to be bigger than it is the uh i love him
3: hurting the kids the hurt the hurting yeah yeah i thought
1: i thought it was i thought he was just as as good under those circumstances as sully sullenberg (laughs) yeah
2: There's also the moment at, uh, towards the end of Stranger Than Paradise where they're they're down to their last 50 bucks and they're going to get stranded and they insist on heading off to gamble without money. And in any other movie, that would be yet another kick in the teeth. No, nope, they come back, you know, kind of back where they started and everything's OK.
3: Or any other movie would show them at the horse track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be all uh, aftermath of that. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah and I, I every single time I watch uh, Stranger Than Paradise, I expect some kind of confrontation on the plane. You know, where he gets mm-hmm. on the plane, and what exactly happens there? Has she already I gotten I off? I think she's
3: already gotten off. Does he get impression. trapped on the plane? I believe, or, or yeah, I believe so. That's, I, that's I think what that's what we're mean. led to believe. Yeah. Is,
4: yeah. Or waiting for the drug money mix-up to come back in any sort of way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, nope, that's a, just a mistake that Phone works money. in their favor. Oh.
2: Yeah, and it's not that he forgets these things. I mean, he, he sets them up consciously, and then he, just, he admits that maybe real life is a lot more relaxed than that. And like not every moment that looks scary turns into some big dramatic thing.
3: Well, if you're expecting a dramatic payoff for all that uh, build-up, I, I hate to disappoint you because we're nearing the end of our podcast. <laughs> but uh, let me say this. You can uh, go see Patterson in theaters. It's not in your town now. It'll be rolling out. It's it's very good in case you haven't caught on from our pr- impressions of it. And you can find uh, Stranger Than Paradise on DVD as part of the Criterion Collection. It's paired with uh, Jarmusch's first film, Permanent Vacation, which is worth a look. It's sort of proto-Jarmusch. Stranger Than Paradise is also streaming on Filmstruck and available for rent. Through the usual places. And we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, want to kick us off?
2: Sure. Um, over the Christmas break, I caught up on a handful of uh, films from this year that I hadn't watched. And one of those was The Dressmaker. Hmm which is an Australian film starring Kate Winslet and Judy Davis, Liam Hensworth, Hugo Weaving. Um, It's got a pretty incredible cast and I don't know that I recommend it at all because this this movie, it is visually gorgeous. It is, uh, the the colors just pop off the screen. Uh, Kate Winslet plays this woman who blows into the tiny backwater town that she came out of after having been ejected in childhood for terrible reasons. And the film is about the unfolding of those reasons and it feels like just a great revenge story and for most of the film it is and it has one of the funniest scenes that I've seen in cinema uh, in all of uh, 2016 where uh, Judy Davis and Kate Winslet try to measure Liam Hensworth for an outfit which involves (laughs) getting him out of most of his clothing which one of them is very uncomfortable with and one of them is not but there is a bat poop crazy turn in the middle of this movie that just completely destroyed it for me. And my sister and I watched it together and came out of it going, how could anybody do that to this movie? However... First of all, the first half of it is tremendous fun. And second of all, the whole time I was watching it, I was thinking, this is so much like Cold Comfort Farm. And it is the closest I've ever seen to that movie, which is an extremely unique film. Uh, John Sleichinger, 1995, actually made for TV, also a novel adaptation, uh, starring Kate Beckinsale, Stephen Fry, uh, Joanna Lumley, Ian McKellen, Miriam Margolis, Rufus Sewell. The cast is amazing. And they're all so young. It's a... A very Austinian story. It's kind of based on Emma about again a young woman who blows into this uh, small farmhouse where her distant relatives live. After the death of her parents, uh, she has nowhere to go so she ends up with them and in a very Emma-like way she begins to interfere in everything going on in the household that she does not like. It is dryly funny in a really hilarious way. It's kind of big overstated comedy played very, very straight. And again Again, it's just it's a beautiful film where the colors really pop off the screen. It's so much fun just to watch uh, like Eileen Adkins or Ian McKellen hamming it up in a major way after some like more dialed down roles. Kate Beckinsale is like 12 years old in this film. Not really, but she feels that way. The acting is tremendous. The humor is just Really, really sharp and spot on, particularly if you've read, you know, Austinian derived works. Uh, so Cold Comfort Farm, it's, it's just a really hilarious film that not enough people know about and more people should.
3: I like that movie. Yeah. yeah,
1: I saw. I haven't seen it since what is no, it, 1995 when it came out. Uh,
2: 1995.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. See, I remember. Uh, God, 21 years ago.
2: Tw- I know. Wait, 22 even. If- and and you remember it fondly. If you go back and watch it again, it plays so much better these days. When like all of these all of these actors are so familiar. Mm-hmm.
3: But I think it would probably be fun to to see that with uh, Love and Friendship now. To see. Yeah. Oh yeah. Kate, Kate well, that's a, that's Kate Beckinsale is so good in that and so good at Love and Friendship and and it's not like she's been bad in the years in between, but I don't know that, that we've seen the best of what she can do in and, in and, and a lot of the movies she's well, a disco as yeah, well. Pearl Harbor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Underworld. Oh, on, I was gonna parts say one through six or whatever.
2: Yeah, and there's a new one in theaters right now. So yeah, it's you too, know, it's too bad if you see her jumping off buildings in cat suits, and you'd rather see her wearing cloche hats and uh, you know attending thirties flapper parties. Uh, I've got the film for you, <laughs> Scott. Uh,
1: yeah, so for Christmas I got a subscription to Filmstruck. It's True. like they're our sponsor, but they're not. They're not. <laughs> I know, but they're like film them. spotting
3: sponsors, yeah. just, so they're part oh, of the family. They're,
4: yeah. they're part yeah. of
1: the family. Well, in any case, it's the it's the streaming service from TCM. Uh, unpaid endorsement (laughs) no real i mean really you should get it it's everything that is good in the world (laughs) in streaming streaming form
4: filmstruck (laughs) seriously
1: this is it's not graft i'm literally saying but it can be graft um (laughs) so um and really the timing of this gift could not have been better for me since i was done unlike tasha i was done cramming to the 2016 films for year-end polls and could watch whatever i wanted over this holiday break Uh, I've been bouncing around quite a bit, you know, from Sam Fuller's Underworld USA to Abbas Karastami's Where is the Friend's House to David Mamet's Oleana. Uh, But I've been particularly... (laughs) You
4: you can't see the face Scott made when he said Oleana. It's
1: it's interesting to see. Um, But I've been particularly aggressive about addressing a longstanding blind spot, which is Fritz Lang's American films. Uh, And that blind spot is particularly shameful to me because uh, Lang is the bridge That connects the long shadows and dark themes of German expressionism with my favorite genre, film noir. Uh, So using Noel Murray's fantastic career view on fritz lang for the dissolve i went through and watched all the films he gave either four and a half or five stars uh fury with spencer tracy you only live once with henry fonda uh scarlet street with G. robinson and a really strange one called house by the river uh only the latter two uh, would really qualify as noir per se but all have this extraordinary sense of style tormented and often hugely flawed heroes and a jaundiced perspective on society that's no doubt informed by lang's time in germany and uh the lessons he learned from that so it's been great i just like ah i just a lot of times i feel like uh next picture show has been great in the sense that i now have a cause to kind of go back and see films that i haven't seen In forever, or maybe haven't seen it all, but haven't seen in a long time for the show. But uh, you get so caught up in the current that you just kind of everything becomes archived. My entire knowledge of film is like this archive that I am drawing from that of films that I haven't seen in twenty or thirty years, I haven't seen at all. And it's you know it's been great to just have a chance to kind of get on this service and uh, fill in some things I hadn't seen before and revisit things I had. Great, but I am going to recommend um, taking that journey. If you can, if you, if you have this the service, especially, Filmstruck has a tremendous amount of Fritz Lang films, including these four. I mentioned Fury, You Only Live Once, Scarlet Street, House by the River. I would just look at Noel's piece on The Dissolve, which is still up and has an incredible illustration, and go through these films one by one. Uh, you will not be uh, disappointed.
2: Where do you recommend people start, Scott?
1: i mean i would start with metropolis and his german stuff but just go in chronological order uh, fury you only live once scarlet street house by the river those uh, that's the way i went through it having only
3: seen scarlet street of those i need to catch up yeah that but. sounds
4: like an exciting journey keith what about you
3: I saw a really good movie today, but I'll save that maybe for next time. Inspired by Stranger Than Paradise, I'll, I'll recommend another one of my favorite films, is Kings of the Road, which is uh, Wim Wenders, the conclusion of his uh, trilogy of road movies he did in Germany in the 70s. It came out in 1976. It's very much uh, an influence on Stranger Than Paradise, and, and he's thanked. And over the credits of Stranger Than Paradise, they knew each other via via Nicholas Ray. So there's, there's definitely a connection there. But it's definitely another film with lots of driving, uh, long pauses, shots that are held for deliberately long Times and a lot of uh, of uh, everyday life captured there. it is nearly three hours long. It is a film about two people. Uh, one is a, a mechanic and one is a, a depressed man who has uh, sort of tried to commit suicide and They end up in a car together driving up and down the border between East and West Germany as the mechanic repairs the projectors in old movie theaters and along the way they just talk about life they, uh, they talk about germany and what their generation the, the post-war generation it means to uh, what it means the uh, influence of, of america uh, on on their culture they listen to the kinks yeah it's another movie that slows things down and lets you look at it and lets you consider these people are and um, how they relate to each other and what they're saying when they're not talking and uh, I love it. It's a, it's, a, it's a real favorite of mine. Uh, the whole trilogy is good. The other two are Alice in the Cities and The Wrong Move. Check them all out. There's a, they're, they're in a box set from Criterion. I, I don't know if they're on Filmstruck or not. Maybe, maybe Scott can tell us. Uh, uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's my recommendation. If you want to go back to some of the uh, influences uh, of, of Jarmusch genevieve finally let 's uh, let 's ask you what uh, what have you uh, watched lately that 's good
4: well i 'm going to uh, be the outlier here and recommend a current movie that is strongly influenced by current events. Um, that movie is Bright Lights, which is a documentary that premiered at Cannes at the beginning of two thousand and sixteen and was originally slated to uh, run on HBO, I believe, in March of this year, but it was moved up. And when I tell you what it's about, you will know why. The subtitle of this movie is starring Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. So HBO bumped up its television premiere following the back-to-back deaths of those two women, which is very sad. And if you are still feeling sad about it, Bright Lights will not make you feel less sad, but it is a very fun movie. It's, It's a sweet, sweet little documentary about a mother and daughter who are very different, but very complementary. They live next door to each other. They are in each other's lives constantly. It's kind of hard to watch this and not make Grey Gardens comparisons, but like minus the tragedy and sadness of, of Grey Gardens. I mean, the Fisher family definitely has some uh, Hollywood tragedy in its past, which the movie gets into. But it's really its biggest feature is just kind of hanging out with Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds together, seeing them interact, being in their houses. Carrie Fisher's house is... Amazing and I really wish that we had an MTV Cribs <laughs> edition of Gary Fisher's house because it is uh, something to behold but yeah it's not a groundbreaking documentary in any sense but it is in terms of timeliness in terms of just showing a interesting mother-daughter relationship on screen and just in terms of Hollywood history I think it's definitely something to watch it's it debuted on HBO this past saturday the 7th but i'm sure it will be rerunning constantly and on hbo streaming services so bright lights you can find on hbo
2: i have to watch that tomorrow for work how much am i gonna cry
4: i don't know i guess it depends how how you know raw nerve you are about about those deaths i i, I honestly think you'll laugh a lot more than you'll oh, cry
2: so i do like laughing more than i like crying yeah
4: yeah i think if you cry it will be more of a Choking up of emotion rather than oh, this is so sad.
1: This <laughs> <So. laughs> should be like a scale.
4: Yeah, is
1: that going be quite the Manchester by the Sea? Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you
4: exactly how I cried at this movie.
3: <laughs> and that's it for this week's edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out on January twenty fourth and January twenty sixth. Scott, what do we have lined up? Well, by the time our next episode drops, we'll have a new president. Uh, <laughs> nope, and, uh, can't.
1: Um, and, and one of the many plot twists of the 2016 election involved Anthony Weiner, the disgraced former congressman, whose marriage to Huma Abedin, one of Hillary Clinton's top advisers, led to some speculation on FBI Director James Comey's part that Weiner's laptop may have had unauthorized emails. Comey's letter played a role in spoiling Hillary Clinton's presidential ambitions, and Weiner's involvement added yet another plot twist to Weiner, a great documentary about his failed attempt to become mayor of New York City. The behind-the-scenes political drama in Weiner recalled another documentary about the down-and-dirty details of running a Democratic campaign, D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges' The War Room. The War Room is about Bill Clinton's successful campaign for president, Weiner is about a man who's partially responsible for ending Hillary Clinton's campaign for president. Over two episodes in two films, we will tell the story of the birth and death of Clintonism in America.
4: And if you're wondering why we're picking as our new film a movie that has been out for almost a year now, this pairing was actually one that was selected by our live audience at our recent live show when we presented some potential pairings that we may do during the doldrums of the winter movie season, which, hey, look, is where we are now. <laughs> Here we are. So th- this pairing brought to you by Real Live Next Picture Show listeners.
1: And also by sleepless with jamie fox which we didn't really have anything for and a bunch of other pretty lame movies that are going to be <laughs> coming out in january
2: i'm telling you monster trucks comes out that we're we're all gonna regret not pairing it I with know. uh all of those I'm a,
3: I'm classic little, noir I'm films involving monsters monster trucks in trucks in the meantime we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of strangers in paradise and patterson and anything else film related we want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episodes, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? You can find me on Twitter at at Scott
1: underscore Tobias. And you can find my work in such places as NPR, Variety, New York Times, Washington Post, Uproxx, other fine publications. Tasha?
2: You can find me writing about film, TV, and Carrie Fisher over at TheVerge.com. You can find me writing about books at the book concierge at NPR Books. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Genevieve? You can find me mostly behind the scenes, but occasionally in front of the scenes at
4: the culture section at Vox. I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And my New Year's resolution is to stay on top of my Letterboxd this year. So I am on Letterboxd at Genevieve Kosky. Please help hold me to that resolution.
2: I'll help you if you'll help me because I'm super bad at... It. and i had a lot of of catch-up to do in the left over the last couple months yeah
3: i figured on january's clean slate i'm gonna to try to do that too just i, I just think also I've, i just want to remember what i've seen yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, i've seen three films this year and i've entered two of them in the letterbox so yeah <laughs> good start but let,
4: but let's all start giving our letterbox handles at uh, the end here
3: right so yeah i'm kfips 3000 i'm also on twitter at kfips 3000 and you can find me at uprocks.com i where i work as the film and tv editorial director also, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show via Twitter at, at Next NextPicturePod, via Facebook at Facebook.com slash Show, or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, and while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show and thanks to Genevieve Kosky for hosting us tonight. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting Family, a podcast and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. I've been working on the rain all the live long day
2: I've been working on the rain
0: Just to pass the time away